I believe there's more people using psychedelics now than mm. there were in the 60s, like in the hippie heydays of 69. So people are really needing more than just SSRIs and benzos because those don't heal us like at the source. They just, you know, put a Band-Aid on and, and mm. hopefully improve the symptoms somewhat. We are just in a trauma soup, I call it. Like we're just swimming in a trauma soup right now. Uh, there's no denying it. Um, so I think we all really, many of us will probably meet the threshold of, of benefiting from psychedelics. You know, and there's so many different ways that we can access them. You know, microdosing, or even breath work. You know, with some less intense options. The mainstream consciousness is changing. Like I don't know if it's a paradigm shift or a revolution or what to call it, but it's definitely changing. Um, and so it's really important that we can step up and say, hey. This is what psychedelics are and this is what they're not. This is how to set reasonable expectations. These are the options and this, this is you know, not an easy path to take. But yeah, if, if we're carrying a lot of trauma, we really have to be careful with ourselves, like treat ourselves like we're a very precious, fragile object because we are. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Psychedelic Conversations. I have a very special guest today, David Drapkin. Welcome, so lovely to have you. Hi Susan, lovely being here. Yeah, I'm a little bit special, but we all are. But yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> a special guest, always. <laughs> um, just a quick background and a little bit of a context around, um, you know, your what you do and, and who you are for our listeners to connect with you. So David is a licensed clinical social worker and a psychotherapist based in New Jersey. At the age of 21, David's near-death electrocution experience resulted in a profound change in life direction. And away from his BA in economics and career dreams to be to be a stockbroker to many years spent in backpacking, spiritual seeking, and uh, disappearing into the nature and solitude. So David, you have received two MA degrees in social work and accumulated over 15 years in frontline clinical supervisory, managerial, and directorship healthcare roles. You worked for three separate hospitals based behavioral health departments and was previously also Previously, three separate. No, so previously, also the clinical director of an outpatient addiction clinic. Yeah. Wow. And you are a psychodynamic psychotherapist with psychoanalytic analytic training from the William Allanson um, White Institute of New York City. And your practice has been open since two thousand seventeen, and your encounters with non ordinary states of consciousness. Uh, go back to your teenage years, which is uh, interesting um, of my interest of mine. Actually, we can talk about that. And you did a lot of traveling, a lot of you know exploration. And what I find is that your interest 
in the intersection between um, transpersonal states of consciousness and Kabbalah. So that's really interesting. Maybe we can touch on that later stage. Um, sure. But for now, you are you have also joined Psychedelics Today 2021 as a director of education and training. That's an incredible body of work. So there's so much I want to ask you, but let's begin with your mm-hmm. background story. What brings you to this work apart from the uh, the near-death electrician? That's really scary, to be honest. Maybe you want to tell us about that. Yeah, let's let's hear your story. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Susan. It, it's been an amazing life, um, primarily because it's been quite difficult being alive, and those difficulties have had huge impacts on me and my growth and my changing directions and um, moving around the world. And um, so, yeah, uh, my electrocution story, I love telling it in a nutshell. You know, I was 21 years old at the time I was a uh, economics student at Nottingham University. I was the president of the Economics Society. I was networking with all the big investment banks in London who was going to go into mergers and acquisitions. I was <laughs> very materialistic. Um, yeah, it was, it was anti-spiritual, a little bit racist, a little bit homophobic, a little bit, you know, sexist. Just had all these beliefs that personally now, I God, I'm completely different now, but I was hiding so much pain and self-hatred that it's really taken a couple of decades of work and psilocybin particularly has been really helpful for that as is cannabis. But when I was 21, I didn't know how much I hated myself. So I was wearing all these fake costumes and masks that just weren't me. And so I was studying for my exam in European economics and I picked up an electric space heater to warm my room because it was bloody cold. And when I picked it up um, with both hands, it had, it had become short-circuited, so it started to electrocute me kind of through my left hand and, and back out through my right hand. Couldn't let go of this space heater. You know, I was screaming high-pitched like I've never done before or after. Um, and for about 15 seconds, I was being shocked and couldn't let go of it because it was stuck with electricity. And I could feel my veins in my hand, my left arm especially, and my heart just expanding like a balloon with electricity. And I started saying to myself, shit, I'm going to die. Let go. I couldn't let go of it. It was stuck to me. And I was getting electrocuted. I was like, let go. Are you going to die? And I couldn't let go. And then I felt myself almost resigned to it. I'm I'm dead. I'm going to die. And then the moment that voice inside said, I'm going to die, let it go. Like literally let go of living um, and fighting the electric space heater exploded and like literally a ball of flames and smoke and flung itself the opposite side of the room. And I was just left standing there in shock. Um, and quite unconsciously, my entire life changed at that moment. Um, so I left the world of economics and stockbroking and being interested in all of that stuff, became interested in social work and counseling, vegetarian, vegan, Shaved off my hair, became Buddhist, went started meditating. Uh, started using cannabis very consciously and psilocybin as well. Um, and yeah, just began the process of healing, really beginning. And who who the fuck am I? 
I'm not this guy that just loves money and pretends to be all of this. So who am I? And and it went through a, a lot of different stages and, you know, it's evolving a lot still now. It really is. Um, but travel, I needed to be alone a lot to heal and to just see who am I um, and to just kind of run away a lot. So one of my healing journeys was to run away and just get away from people because being around people made me feel more insecure and just, I hadn't figured out yet who to be. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in monasteries and temples and forests and jungles and caves uh, for quite a number of years around the world. Um, yeah, meditating and learning scriptures and teachings and writing a lot and just being alone a lot. And I was still running away. Um, and now that I'm a married man with kids and a mortgage, it's meant I can't really run away. Like I'm, I'm accountable to myself now. So it's really interesting just integrating all of those experiences um, into, yeah, having a job and paying a mortgage and being a good dad and husband. Really hard, really, really hard doing all of that stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I understand that. Thank you for sharing. So the the running and the who am I and, and the, the, the whole, the rest of it, the process that you've, you've gone through, um, do you think that, you know, I always speak to, you know, a lot of people in the psychedelic sphere, and do you think that psychedelic modalities are, it's almost like people who go through the deepest, darkest, you know, processes in life, transformational processes, they kind of seek psychedelics. Um, there is like a theme or a thread, a common thread with a lot of people who come into the psychedelic space and and you know it's it's interesting there's um inside joke around you know friends that i have who are in the psychedelic field that um the the darker the deeper the wounds or the 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 story uh the stronger the tool that you seek the stronger the modality that you seek for healing uh so that's the common thread um a lot of people who's gone through a lot of suffering in life they they tend to somehow cross paths with psychedelics what are your thoughts on that yeah it's interesting isn't it i i believe there's more people using psychedelics now than mm -hmm. there were in the 60s like in the hippie heydays of 69 so people are really needing more than just ssris and benzos because those don't heal us like at the source at the root of our trauma they just you know put a band-aid on and and hopefully improve the symptoms somewhat. I think folks, a lot of folks are using antidepressants and they're like, ah, they work a bit, but they also don't work. And there's lots of side effects and I've tried to get off them, but it's really hard to get off them. Um, and I think we're just getting deeper as a society into, wow, we're kind of messed up as a society. And uh, I've absorbed a lot of pain and trauma. Mm -hmm. that I need to kind of heal and, and just get to the surface. We seem to be a little bit more kind of fluent in our inner world, less superficial, less fake. I think it's just starting to, to realize just kind of the, the intensity of our times that we're living in. So we can't hide from that and ignore it anymore. Um, and yeah, that we are just, in a trauma soup, I call it. Like we're just swimming in a trauma soup right now. Uh, there's no denying it. Um, so I think we all really, many of us will probably meet the threshold of, of benefiting from psychedelics. 
you know, and there's so many different ways that we can access them, you know, microdosing, or even breath work, you know, with some less intense options. Um, but yeah, there's just such a huge need out there. Um, we get so many phone calls and emails of, hey, I really need to work with a therapist or do you know any good retreat centers that, that I can, you know, do ayahuasca because I've heard this podcast about it. So it's just unbelievable the amount of interest we're getting and you know, folks that are watching, say, the Michael Pollan show, How to Change Your Mind on Netflix or reading that book. The, the, the mainstream consciousness is changing. Like, I don't know if it's a paradigm shift or a revolution or what to call it, but it's definitely changing. Um, and so it's really important that we can step up and say, hey, this is what psychedelics are and this is what they're not. This is how to set reasonable expectations. Um, these are the options and this, this is you know, not an easy path to take and it's full of uncertainty. And yeah, it, it may get worse before it gets better. And if someone's coming with a lot of trauma, then yeah, wow, we really need to spend some time first before medicine work just to focus on set and setting and get some expectations set up first. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I'm just saying people focus a lot on the medicine sessions mm. and they're kind of curious just to try and oh, see what it's like. Mm-hmm. And that's okay too. There's different ways. But yeah, if, if we're carrying a lot of trauma, we really have to be careful with ourselves, like treat ourselves like we're a very precious, fragile object because we are. Yeah. So these are the insights that are emerging a lot now. Um, would you say that it always has been, but somehow, somehow, like one of my friends is a therapist and he says, it's like, it's almost like the world is closing in. Like with all the pandemic situations and the economic crisis and uh, increase in, in population, like all of this, um, it's like the, the world is closing in, meaning it's kind of like everyone's entering into like a pressure cooker type of um, processes or, or states internally, and which always brings up a lot of the things that's been suppressed or somehow people are functioning well with it. And suddenly now, the functioning, the functioning is taken away, like the functioning, the coping mechanisms have kind of like taken away or they don't work anymore. So um, it's bringing people to look more deeper, like the, the, the fragmentation pathologies, you know, in mental health challenges. Now we're learning more. Also the education part is, you know, imagine like 50s or earlier, we had other problems. The world had other problems now as we are evolving and there is a, a you know increase in like the, the evolution of technology for example it is helping people to find out and learn things quicker so the education front is becoming more stronger i think so the, the word trauma informed or trauma was something of very unknown even a decade ago or maybe five years ago well spoken around like now it's everywhere on social media everybody knows what it is it gets thrown around so now we kind of entered into space of like education is so valuable and important almost critical and i know that you guys are providing the vital education program especially especially around psychedelics and one of the reasons we do this podcast is to bring more education more perspective from those who are in the front lines right now. And especially when it comes to working with modalities such as psychedelics, as you can imagine, it's not something you could just try. 
just because it can unlock and open can of worms or bring something to surface that the person may not be ready for. So maybe this is a, a good moment to kind of touch on your offerings on the program and the certification, also teaching people how to work with it, right? What are your thoughts on that? Why is it so important now, the education front in psychedelics? Good question. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of curiosity right now. Are questions being asked nonstop? And we're seeing, like we were just saying, a change in society. So who's going to answer those questions? Who's going to provide the education? It's not going to be our politicians. They set laws. You know, doctors and nurses and psychologists and psychiatrists, there are some that understand psychedelics, but probably 99% don't. They don't have familiarity with it. They don't know the research. They don't have experience with it. And they maybe have some quite stigmatizing beliefs around it. So who's going to step up to into that kind of vacuum? Um, you know, there's, there's a few folks out there, psychedelics today, you know, where I work, we're one of those people. We're, we've been making podcasts for six years. We've had uh, over 4 million uh, downloads to our podcast. So we've been educating the mass public around the world through our podcast for yeah five, six years because it's like people need to know this and they need to get deep knowledge. So we talk about inner work. We, we talk about really having a relationship with self that is profound and challenging, um, that is, in a sense, countercultural. It, it doesn't fit in easily with our sense of what it is to be a human being, like to work and, to, you know, um, the nuclear family. So which we're really starting to see that people are having more questions around, like, what is the meaning of life? Um, depression sky high, suicide sky high, anxiety is really high, you know, eating disorders, addictions, overdoses. So the, for me, uh, something that connects all of those together is it's disconnection. So we're connected by our disconnection, but it's it's really a kind of existential doubt and insecurity about the meaning of life and our, and our one life being meaningful. Um, so our trainings are designed to answer those questions. Yes, we provide all of the academic, scientific, clinical articles and research and guidelines. We focus on the ethical practices. Um, we do lots of kind of role plays and activities and case study reviews. But we also put loads and loads of emphasis on the questions of like, who are you? Why are you doing this work? What, what is your goal here? What do you need to work through? What's a real big challenge? How hard are you willing to focus on this and to kind of go to those challenging places with difficult questions? And we create a container for our students to gently, gently kind of build that sense of community as a safe place, as a container, to go on retreat with each other as part of our 12-month vital course. And to meet each other each week in a small group format of up to 15 students with two facilitators each week for 40 weeks in that 12-month period where we really meet each other and hold space for each other. Um, and that kind of right relationship and being witnessed is, is healing, it's empowering, and it's experiential around learning about ourselves and each other and how to do this work. So you can't just do it in a theoretical way. We're very practical, 
kind of relational in how we work. Mm. So that's just one thing I'm thinking. And then just the community piece, you know, I touched on that. So what you were saying, Susan, is I think we need community and the, the internet and Zoom is good for that. You know, we have loads of ways that we, we're building community through our courses and through, you know, our, our media channels. Because, uh, yeah, we still feel like we're doing something a bit weird. And there's a lot of gray about what's legal, what's not legal. And we uh, opposed vehemently to the war on drugs and the criminalization of people that use drugs. And we use a, you know, a very strong harm reduction approach and a risk reduction approach to recognizing well, there's millions of people using psychedelics every week. You know, it's getting more and more popular, but do they know how to do it safely? Like, could it do more harm to them if they're going to an ayahuasca circle and no one's assessed them? They don't really know who's going to be there. They haven't done any preparation and they've got to go to work the next day. Like, you know, we really want to help those folks to make safe decisions about what you're ready for. And is this the right, right timing for this, the right way of approaching this work? Yeah, this is great. Just providing the fundamentals, the, the greater understanding of your communing with something ineffable. It's incredibly powerful. And maybe you need to think twice if you're booking it to go to work the next day. That's really important uh, because you may not be able to. Your life, you might go through a paradigm shift overnight. And then what? Right? These are the questions and the conversations that are happening that I am aware of. And the community. So how do we, so I've got so many questions, but just want to touch on. So how do we navigate the legal landscape? We want to educate people. So one of the things that we cannot bury our heads in the sand anymore because the elephant in the room is psychedelics been around since the 50s. They've, if anything, increased in use, whether we accept it or not. So we can no longer be in denial uh, just because there are, you know, stigma and negativity around how we understand them just because of the, you know, earlier, earlier um, situations with around psychedelics in the 50s, for example, it dropped like a bomb in the middle of this industrialized world and quickly went underground. So this doesn't mean we cannot continue denying they don't exist. I mean, you know, there is a gentleman I like, I think he wrote a book saying, your neighbors are doing psychedelics. Like literally, it is that common. And, and, and I think um, more conversations around this. And, and I think I understand the legal landscape is making it extremely difficult. Um, how are you guys, you know, navigating this space in that sense? Good question. So we've got students in our 12-month vital course um, from all over the world, literally about 20 different countries from Nepal and Lebanon, um, you know, Mexico, Holland. England, America, Canada, so all over the world. And each country's got different rules. And each, and there's different rules for different professionals, social workers, doctors, nurses, guides, yoga teachers, you know, naturopaths. Each of those have their own kind of laws. Um, and then in America, each state's got its own sets of laws as well. So it's impossible to have a course that is going to be able to provide, you know, a unique experience for, say, a psychologist in Indiana, in America, that wants to do addiction work with, you know, psychedelics. 
It's, it's, it's completely different for each student. So what we've tried to do is explain it at the very, very beginning to students. Vital is amazing. Uh, you'll get loads from it. It's going to be life-changing, hopefully. But one thing you won't get is a piece of paper that says you now have permission to break the law. Um, it's not going to change the laws wherever you live. And so whatever you can't legally do right now professionally, completing vital won't change that because that really just depends on the government changing the rules of whatever country you're in. And again, you know, we really oppose the war on drugs and a lot of the stigma and misinformation and kind of the racial criminalization of humans that use psychedelics it's it's uh it hasn't been done for scientific reasons or even kind of social reasons of caring for each other so we have to get that message across and the question then is so all these people that are using psychedelics do they know how to do it safely and, and all these people that are holding space for those people if they're not doing it alone do they know how to do it safely responsibly safely for themselves to protect themselves but also to protect their client that they're working with so there's, you know, that takes a lot of experience. And, and if this is a criminalized industry, no one's going to get trained because, you, you know, you've got millions of people using psychedelics. But if, if everyone's scared of saying, hey, I really want to work on uh, my, the ethics of space holding and how do I do an assessment for someone? And what if they're taking antidepressants? What if they've got a, you know, a history of addiction? How do I work with them? Um, you know, what about touch? Can, can I touch them in a, in a medicine session? How do I work around that? So these are massive questions, complex, complex questions. And so we need to be able to have this discussion in an adult way. Um, so we believe this is an essential service that we're providing to fill a vacuum for people that use psychedelics or that work with people that use psychedelics all over the world. And it's from a harm reduction perspective because it's happening. So the more competence that we can offer, the more skills and education and guidance, we're, we're going to help more people have better, deeper, more safer psychedelic experiences. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So who qualifies? What are the qualifying criteria for vital program? And, you know, who is it for, for example? Yeah, this is a very powerful course that is not limited to people that have a master's degree in xyz you don't have to be a licensed mental health uh, you know practitioner you can be and that's awesome so i am and that's great so i bring all of my training and certificates and licenses into this work but there's also so many people doing our courses that are not licensed that are not mental health practitioners don't have master's degrees and they are being called to do this work from a very deep place. And they want skills and training in that. And uh, a lot of them are already doing the work already. So what we've done is we've put a lot of emphasis in our application process on life experience. So yes, if someone's a psychologist or a nurse, great, tell us all about it. But if say someone has worked in a retreat center in Jamaica, or they've teach people yoga or meditation or they do massage therapy or they're an executive coach or they are a veteran and they hold integration groups for veterans in their community that's amazing so they're doing amazing work there 
So they are welcome to apply. People that are doing real life experience. And what we're going to see in the in the years ahead as psychedelics roll out, as they're decriminalized, as they're legalized, as they're medicalized, those are three totally different things. All over the world, it's going to look totally different, different states and different countries. There's going to be a massive need for people that are not psychiatrists, psychologists, and psychotherapists to be trained to hold space because it's going to be legal in many parts of the world to do that. Um, so, for example, in Oregon, the requirements to be a, a licensed psilocybin facilitator is you need a high school diploma, basically. Mm. And then you can apply to take this 120 hour course. And then you take an exam, you do a 40-hour practicum as well, and then you can be legally licensed according to state law, but not federal American law, to hold space for people to sit with them in a licensed psilocybin center working with psilocybin-containing mushrooms. So, so we're starting to see, and the same is going to be happening in Colorado and then California, and then we, we're really seeing this in Australia. They've just medicalized mdma and psilocybin you know we don't know yet who's going to be qualified to to hold space and to provide those services um and particularly there's also very separate scopes of practices and protocols for people that work with a client along their journey so we've got people doing intake calls assessment sessions we've got people doing kind of group um preparation as well we've got yeah the, the sitting during medicine it could be legal with ketamine in which case pretty much anyone in america can be trained to hold space and sit with someone doing ketamine you, you don't administer it yourself you're just holding space and sitting and guiding them so that's open really to everybody um you know i think when maps finalizes their requirements with with the uh, the fda about who are those people that can provide these services there's going to be different types of people at different stages of that journey that can hold space and we need you know rick doblin said we need i think between 50 to 100,000 people trained within five years so we don't have that many people in america that have medical licenses they don't exist and they already have massive waiting lists and there's an over demand beyond what supply can reach so if you've got tens of thousands of people a year wanting to do a you know a, a sequence of MDMA sessions with, say, three MDMA sessions of eight hours each. There is no capacity for that right now. So we've got to train people that can build on their current scope of practice, whatever that might be. It might be microdose coaching. It might be executive leadership coaching. It might be meditation. It might be harm reduction or integration circles. Let's build on what skills they've got already because they are already serving their community and just amplify what they've got, give them everything that we have, help them build community and really doing a massive intensive quest within to build their capacity to serve their community. So that's what we're, we're doing. And, it, and, it, and I have to say, honestly, Susan, this is our first year doing it and we've been blown away by the benefit our students have got from being in this very diverse, holistic cohort of 140 students from around the world, yeah, that diversity, but also diversity of professional experience and life calling. So we've got some psychiatrists that just prescribe meds doing this course. And they're now saying, oh, I'm a psychedelic psychiatrist now, because this is the work they want to do with ketamine and MDMA when it's classified. 
you know, and they're sitting in a group with a coach in Amsterdam, with a, with a researcher and policy specialist in Lebanon, with a journalist in England, you know, with ketamine therapists in Colorado. And these are real people in our course right now that I'm describing, all sitting in a small group every week, talking about what they're working on, about how, what this means and about their own healing journeys as well. And by hearing each other's voices and, and sit outside of the bubble of being oh, social workers or psychologists or psychiatrists, we then start to understand what are psychedelics and how do they touch people's lives? And that they're, they're not a medical clinical intervention, just they're also a spiritual intervention as well. And we all share that regardless of what job we say we do. We're all spiritual beings spiritually healing ourselves and each other mm, that's wonderful so what i'm hearing is we're going to need different different people coming from different backgrounds bringing their own wisdom experience knowledge education in whatever area they have and just adding the psychedelic as another tool into their into their skill set and bring it to their community their own people clients uh families i know some people just want to learn i have a connection a lady in the uk she just wants to learn this for her family because she just watched her lineage suffer from a lot of trauma she just wants to do this for her family so that these are great intentions great and it's it's very powerful to be stepping into into that kind of service um so what are your thoughts on um there are pushbacks obviously uh with um you know, companies who are trying to create novel, um, you know, medicines, novel sort of, uh, they, they're kind of playing around with these um, psychedelic substances to create short acting and, you know, cut the duration, maybe cut the cost. Cut. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I know there's a lot of pushback from people who are really in the field of coming from, like, you know, you have had 15 years in in this kind of space. So I think, and I hear that they're, they're kind of a little bit resentful towards these kind of approaches. What are your thoughts on that? There is no one psychedelic community or ecosystem or industry or space. I hate to break the news. Yeah, that we are, yeah, we are fragmented. There's many different beliefs around the psychedelic experience and, and healing through psychedelics. So nobody owns it and it's kind of up for grabs right now. And so I think the more that people that have been in relationship with psychedelics for, for years, the more we see companies springing up saying, oh, this is our molecule or, you know, we're going to tweak the delivery mechanism. So now it's got a patch or now it's in an IV bag. We have the IP of that. It's going to happen. You know, this is the way capitalism works and, you know, um, clinical trials take hundreds of millions of dollars to get through phase three in America. Um, so they need some IP to back that up. MAPS is probably a one-off. It's going to be the only one that can do that. You know, USONA as well with psilocybin. They're a little bit kind of unique, I'd say. So how do we make space for capitalism that does what capitalism does? It's just, this is what it does. Um, it, it, it innovates, it tweaks. It you know captures intellectual property and extracts profit, and the more 
that capitalism controls the infrastructure of the psychedelic movement, um, the more people will actually say, you know what, I don't want to be part of that. I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing in my yoga studio or in my coaching practice. That just doesn't feel right to me to pay those companies to use their psilocybin, this much money, or you know, to only be able to do it in a hospital facility. You know, that's not how I want to work with people. So maybe I'll go to Amsterdam and do retreats there with my clients. You know, or maybe I'll just do harm reduction integration work, or maybe I'll work in the underground still. So whatever happens, there's still going to be an underground. Um, we have to acknowledge that. Not everyone is going to suddenly say, okay, great, I'm going to go work in a clinic or a hospital and, and do that. Um, because that's not what every person in the world wants to, in their own experiences. Um, it's complicated. We don't know what it's going to look like. I feel like the, the particular question around changing the intensity, the duration of a psychedelic trip, or maybe even removing the hallucinatory effect of a trip. Uh, I'm honestly not a big fan of all this stuff. It is what it is, and it will happen. Um, I, I appreciate the need to maybe have options for patients. You know, maybe it's better to stay, start with a, a three-hour psilocybin journey than an eight-hour one. Um, so there's companies working on that. You know, I get it, you know, through IV um, and other things. Uh, but I also feel like we have alternatives right now. We say, okay, so let's, have you ever tried meditation? You've ever tried yoga or just getting a massage or just doing some kind of somatic experiencing awareness work of your body? Or how about working with cannabis or cannabis and breath work together? Or maybe let's start with some oral lozenges, ketamine, and do some talk therapy while you're experiencing that. So I, I kind of feel that we've got a pretty good toolbox already of, of helping patients maybe just feel their way in. If they've got some concerns, if they're a bit scared perhaps, or if there's a lot of trauma within themselves, that we need to be careful about how quickly we kind of go through the layers of that trauma. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's, there's going to be an over-medicalization of psychedelics. I'm, I'm afraid to say it is going to be over-medicalized, but there will be many other options as well, legal and non-legal in different countries. And we've got so many people now going to Mexico, Jamaica, Costa Rica, Portugal, Amsterdam every, every week, you know, tens of thousands of people doing this in amazing places. Uh, with great protocols, with really well-trained people, and people having life-changing experiences there. So would I love people to be able to do that here in, in New Jersey or with you in London? Yeah, I would. I really would. So I'd love the laws to, to change, to reflect that, that people are spending five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 to go to these places for life-changing experiences because they need healing. And a lot of them say they're going to Mexico or, or Jamaica for Ibogaine. You know, a lot of them have been to rehab. They've been through detox. They've been in 12-step groups. Didn't work. Or didn't work enough, deep enough. And so they're paying 5, 10, 20 grand to go to these places to really go deep inside for that kind of really powerful, challenging, deep work. Could they do that here in, in England or America? Yeah, we could totally build spaces that do that. But it needs to be legal. So the laws need to change to reflect that. 
Um, I'm hoping within five years it's going to happen. There's, you know, we had a podcast with Catherine Tucker and their um, Breakthrough Therapies Act, which is trying to reschedule in America psilocybin to Schedule Two, which would make it a lot more flexible uh, uh, doing research with psilocybin, but also offering services with psilocybin so that it's more affordable and accessible, less red tape. And it's safe. It's much safer than a lot of the other drugs on Schedule Two and Schedule Three here in America. Um, so, you know, I, I believe we'll see it. And I do also believe this psychedelic experience itself is essential. Yeah. You know, that's where the magic happens. That's where we touch the infinite, the ineffable. And we see our trauma kind of really coming up deeply. And we get to experience connection with each other and a oneness. So I don't know what to call that experience. It's not really hallucinating. It's not really even the psychedelics. It's, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's a spiritual emergence, a transpersonal experience. And I think that is what makes psychedelics so powerful and effective. Mm, that's wonderful. Thanks for sharing your take on. Um, just want to take the conversation towards, um, yes, there will be like medicalized versions where the time is cut short for the experience i get that i mean i i do understand it just because of the diversity of the people that come into this space um, and needing different things for example um i remember having conversations with a native medicine facilitator that i met years ago for example she really struggled working with the west some people from the west west um just because they would turn up to the ceremony and for whatever reason expect it's a bit like the the model of the um the model of you know um you got a headache take a pill get rid of your headache type of approach so she used to really struggle with bringing the indigenous practices of no you know you need there is a devotion and patience around this work you need to give yourself time to build relationship with each medicine and you need to stop being a psychedelic shopper you can't be taking ayahuasca today and tomorrow san pedro and then next day mushrooms and then the buffo next day like you need to take time there's a devotion there's a relationship there's an investment which some of the Western, you know, more like uh, people who live in the West, they don't understand this concept. Therefore, it's a very a real struggle for some of the facilitators who carry that kind of approach or perspective on the medicine. Um, I'm guessing if there's going to be, you know, just pills that you can take for like one hour effect or not effect, I don't know. Surely it's going to serve some people, some, you know, parts of the world, people from different parts of the world, backgrounds, education, culture, understanding. So like you said, there will be something for everyone, I guess, in this development and uh, what we're going to see in the future. So what are your thoughts on the indigenous practices? And because when you speak about the ineffable, the connection, the spiritual, I'm kind of leaning towards more of that and understanding more of the relationship part rather than just i need cure let me have it type of approach do you yeah. know what i mean yeah there's there's quite a few things we can talk about here susan definitely there is a tendency to oversimplify 
everything and want quick fixes um, and not want to do the hard work, the painful, kind of dark, sticky inner work. Um, like just to get a kind of a faceless Botox. I go, okay, I'm better now, you know. <laughs> it's harder to actually, yeah, you know, moisturize and, and do exercise and it's hard to talk about feelings. So, so much of this isn't even in the medicine. It's in the preparation. It's in the the intention setting about what am I opening up here? What am I willing to open up? And then once we open is meeting that afterwards and how do I stay open to this and not close back up again? The medicine sessions are amazing. You know, the neuroplasticity as well is is a key part of this experience that the medicine allows. But yeah, fundamentally, it's a spiritual experience that we're having. Like I believe, you know, we are spiritual beings in this body that lasts just a little bit. It'll die and then our spirit, you know, moves and the soul returns and it continues evolving. Um, I can't speak to indigenous traditions because uh, I don't belong to, it, to any and haven't been taught in them. But I am a Jew and I do connect with my tradition as an indigenous tradition of the, you know, the Hebrew people, uh, the Israelites. Um, and my experiences in life, definitely over the last 20 years, since I got electrocuted, <laughs> have helped me understand, yeah, my tradition, um, you know, of where we come from um, and how wisdom is passed on through our traditions, through our elders, through our teachings. So there is an, an initiation process. So for me, you know, my bar mitzvah gave me lots of things. You know, I got a Nintendo, I got a, a portfolio of shares in the stock market. You know, I got nice pairs of jeans and stuff like that. But I, I also got a sense of belonging. And I rejected that a few years later. But when I was in my mid-20s and then early 30s, came back to it. Um, and that sense of belonging, I feel, is key to indigenous traditions and something that we seem to have lost in the West. I belong. We belong. There is meaning to us, to life. And, it, and it's very still and silent. My tradition speaks of, you know, of this relationship with the divine. And it is there within us all. So I feel like the space-holding piece, the initiation, the rites of passage, the holding space with each other in times of, of good, bad, of difficulty, of pain, uncertainty, those skills and that willingness to hold space is sacred. So what we're talking about is sacred space and sacred skills in space holding before, during, and after medicine work, really just in more and more of our interpersonal relationships. So in, in vital, yeah, of course, we have some amazing teachers that really you know, talk about the tradition. So Luis Eduardo Luna, um, he's based in brazil incredible um or maybe colombia he's an incredible teacher been doing this work for yeah 40 years got joe tafor as well uh, who wrote the book uh fellowship of the river he's one of our teachers um and yeah we've got some great um classes we've had with some nonprofits in the space as well that work around reciprocity sustainability and um, chikruna being one of the the partners that we you know really uh, appreciate their support so there's amazing traditions around the world that, that we don't share the wisdom of. 
but we need to learn from. Not to copy it or to own it or to, you know, kind of um, reappropriate ourselves, but just to kind of humbly, respectfully learn from it and see, ah, how do I integrate that into my life, into my family, into maybe just dinner time with the kids or our weekends uh, or my mornings so that I'm more connected to my spiritual essence in my mornings or before I go to bed. That's integration and that's learning from indigenous wisdom uh, about how to hold space within ourselves and for each other. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, some of the work that we do over here with the integration is that um, there is a common thread. There are a lot of people that somehow, especially in England, um, I know you're from, from UK and it's interesting for me to see that obviously I'm, my background is Turkish, obviously coming from Turkey and grew up in a small town. And I, I experienced that belonging. And although it was quite chaotic, that's a whole nother story. But ultimately, there were traditions that we followed somehow brought people together. And then coming to England, of course, living in um, diverse cities like this and vibrant and, you know, I see that especially the people that we work with or guide through these experiences or, or the coaching, there is a lack of belonging for sure. And I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. I feel like, especially, it's interesting. I know these are not coincidences or bringing up these conversations. Um, Especially lately, this year, beginning of, from, say, let's 2023, one of the common threads have been, how do we claim our place here? How do we feel that belonging to each other? How do we belong to each other? How do we create communities that may not look like indigenous ways or the indigenous traditional ways, but we create what suits us, what can hold us and contain us and in the cities that we live, in this vibrant place that, you know, uh, so, you know, there's so much to do and everybody finds it very difficult to find time to reflect, slow down, breathe, all of that. Can we create our own containers and communities that can serve us? You know, not necessarily like we have to follow certain traditional indigenous ways, but just you know, innovating our own, creating our own, finding our own ways to root here and belong so that we also can have the accountability. Because what I love about the communities is the accountability piece, because sometimes we can get lost. We can do so much on our own and there's a, there's a limit. You hit the wall. So my biggest passion here is like, can we create communities that can look like what we want it to look like? You know, because we're so diverse and some people are so far away from their families, their traditions, they don't even know um, that they don't have, you know, in the past, like, for example, your background, the tradition, you probably have elders can speak to it. And there's like a lot of people coming together in ours as well. My tradition, very blessed to have a lot of elders stepping into that elder role, talking about the past, the history the traditions, so they don't die. But unfortunately, it's not the same for everyone. And so that means now we are finding ways to create that and create our own traditions. 
So, which is beautiful. I think psychedelic work kind of needs that. It needs that. It's just, I can't imagine it without that kind of container. And uh, yeah, so thank you for that. It's just, I just wanted to share this because this is a common thread that is coming up again and again with our guests, speakers, with people I communicate with. And yeah, there is a definite need for belonging. Yeah, awesome. It's great you're noticing that. And it means something completely different for everybody. Mm. Um, there's not one definition of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So from here, let's move towards the uh, the transpersonal states of consciousness and Kabbalah. What are your thoughts and take mm -hmm. on that? Yeah. Yeah. So I have to start by saying I'm not an expert in, in Kabbalah. Um, and it's uh, a mystical tradition. It really is. You know, in, in the Jewish religion, it, it's uh, we've always been told, you know, it's only for people that are 40 years old, married, men that have already learned every single other book that there is. And then they're kind of ready to, to start learning Kabbalah. So that's been said for hundreds of years. Um, it's actually very accessible nowadays. So there's a lot of books around Kabbalah that, yeah, you can buy everywhere and there's Jewish versions and more kind of magical esoteric versions, especially like for folks that want to get more into the, the tarot side of it. Um, but, you know, Kabbalah is a, a wisdom tradition that's been going for thousands of years that helps people to see the magical, to see the divine in ordinary life and to have a more direct and real relationship with God. Not just in an austere way of awe, because awe is like, awe, not awful, but just full of awe, like wonderment and like, whoa, like really connecting with that through awe and wonderment. And to, to feel meaning in, in life, uh, you know, that life is a sacred thing and a day and a breath is, is completely sacred. And so how I'm interested to understand how Kabbalah comes in in a transpersonal uh, kind of lens is our conceptualization of being a human being and of human experiences and human connection. And as, as soon as we start to go beyond this idea of identity being a body with a name, this ego, when we go into like a non-dual state, that, wow, I can experience everything there. Everything is there when I stop limiting it through just being David in this, you know, Englishman's body. Um, so this transpersonal state, yeah, connects to uh, other human beings now, other entities in form and without being in form. You could consider that angels or beings, uh, animals, nature and the universe at large and to different periods of time beyond just now so um for me uh, my sense of integrating kabbalah into a transpersonal compass would be yeah awareness of time and place that transcends just the here and now but includes it and connects it to the traditions of ancestors and intergenerational beings 
of my path and of all all beings path so this kind of human lineage um that we share and that each indigenous tradition has a wisdom path that connects to the transpersonal um and it has different different kind of you know rites and different routines different traditions you know that help people to connect with it um you know different songs different um meditative prompts different uh yeah things that we wear at different times of year different things that we eat and fasting and places on pilgrimage too um so i feel like this concept of pilgrimage is is a beautiful thing too like i've done a few pilgrimage in my time you know in india and in israel and new zealand um yeah i feel like ultimately we're all on a pilgrimage somehow maybe not physically yet we haven't found how to physically manifest that as a journey but ultimately yeah this experience of being alive is a pilgrimage we're revealing you know divine layers of existence that give us life that create the universe every single day so it's a it's a pilgrimage through those states of being and a shedding of a lot of the darkness a lot of the the shells and masks of who we have previously identified as and separated ourselves from others because it's safe and easy to feel separate either because we feel better than everyone or because we feel worse than everyone neither of those are true ultimately yeah that's so wonderful and what are your thoughts around every tradition i mean every religious um every religion had um uh, had their own sacraments in psychedelic form i know this has been like a big topic in the psychedelic field everyone's talking about it and there's books are being written i'm aware of uh, dr jerry brown like he's really big on the christianity and psychedelics um and then now also with the hebrew and to be to be honest this topic i don't really go into it but i feel like you're the right person to take your thoughts on um especially like with islam now there are sayings that it, they used to have poppy seeds and um, probably they kind of smoked it and meditated in caves and so on to commune with the divine that's hence why the insights according to that and you know there's so much is being said and talked about around that um what are your take on do you think there is a psychedelic um history in these religious um you know the way they they formed yeah so formal religion has morphed over the centuries and millennia to being quite a political construct political social cultural construct lots of laws um and it's very disempowering in it, in many of its manifestations for people so i think of you know humanity even before religions before jewish islam christian religions there were more indigenous kind of naturalistic traditions that existed you know when humans lived in tribes and when we were living kind of in in with nature you know at the at the kind of behest of nature kind of to survive so we developed over thousands and thousands of years this beautiful relationship with nature and i don't want to kind of overly romanticize it now like i like having a house and electricity and phones and you know buying some books online that's cool um but we've lost a lot we've paid a bloody big price for it and 
the fact that we're destroying nature now, ecocide, because of our disconnection from Mother Earth, is one of the symptoms of that disconnection and being lost. So the yeah, number one, we've had relationships with nature, with the divine, and with plants that give psychedelic experiences for thousands of years. We've used meditation and dance and prayer and chant and solitude and fasting as well for thousands of years. So yeah, you know, lots of traditions have all of those things. So my tradition has a lot of fasting, a lot of praying, a lot of singing, a lot of chanting, a bit of dancing as well um, at different times of the year. You know, different rituals that help help you to go beyond the self um, and for the body to actually experience, yeah, a high state of consciousness. And, and, and yeah, other traditions have that too, I'm sure, you know. I know, you know, in the Sufi tradition, the the whirling dervishes, and and that's amazing. And the Zoroastrian tradition as well um, has evidence of that. You know, ancient Greece, you know, they they were using um, a psychedelic substance. Um, you know, with, I think was it Adelphi, um, the Eleusian mysteries. So yeah, there's traditions of this. You know, in in the West as well as in more kind of you know the the Amazonian and African traditions with say, the, the Bwiti religion and, and Iboga. So there's lots of traditions. Um, you know, there's cave paintings and carvings and ceramics that tell these stories thousands of years old all over the world. And that reinforces what we're doing here is that this is not a medicalized model. We've had a relationship that goes back thousands of years with consciousness, with God, with healing, holding space with a tribe, with a community looking after each other, you know, going through these transpersonal states. So yeah, we can have a medical model that also does that, but we have to allow folks to continue using more ancient traditions and yeah, potentially merging them and melding them into different practicals and, and protocols based on what people need and what, what gifts that we have. I'm a little bit I joke a bit about some of the more hybrid um, manifestations of kind of the Western blending of indigenous kind of sacred ceremony. So I think there's a little bit too many woo-woo shaman um, kind of merging of, you know, oh, I'm going to start holding space because I had this great experience. I need to save the world. Um, you know, I've got a message for humanity. I'm kind of like a messenger. So, yes, we all are. And we'll have a piece to play, but I'm very wary of people that have that powerful experience and they're like, okay, I'm going to have a podcast. I'm going to start a retreat center. Um, you know, I'm going to do all these amazing things after, you know, just one experience. So I think humility is a really important part of that. And just knowing that this has been happening for thousands of years and, and how to hold that intensity without thinking that I'm the best or I'm, I am special. We all are, but uh, we are all just, yeah, a very small part of this. Yes, I love that. And that's kind of like the almost daily conversation among my my friends in the psychedelic space about the Messiah complex. You know, I've just, you know, return of the, you know, Messiah, I'm here to save the world. So, and that's one of the reasons we reinforce the community containers. Because, you know, in the past, if someone did that, there'll be elders, there'll be more mature and experienced people that would keep them accountable, keep them like in check. 
um, one of the one of the you know risks that we're experiencing now in in the Western model is um, who keeps them in check when people just after one ceremony decides to become a facilitator just because the medicine told them right so and they act on it um, like I have friends also in the US like uh, continually have these conversations online you know you know people shouldn't be walking around with buffo medicine in their pocket ready to just serve thinking they are the return of a messiah saving the world kind of thing so yeah that's you know how do we keep people in check in, in this kind of western model right this is like for me is the biggest risk uh, i'm sure you have your own thoughts on that maybe you want to speak to it yeah it's it's going to be very different for each person depending on what's coming up for them i think the, the main thing is community is belonging to something other than self so anyone that's, that's using psychedelics kind of alone that might be a red flag it depends but definitely the risk factors are higher if someone's using psychedelics alone you know if they need help there's you know there's helplines here in america called uh, fireside project so you can help if if you need it um but having community or a space holder to help you keep it real, not kind of lose your shit if you're really freaking out, but also, you know, just to stay grounded and be patient and not jump to conclusions and just learn how to integrate being a spiritual being with just being a, a normal human being. So, yeah, I think that accountability relationship is, is super important as well. Um, you know, just thinking about ketamine as well. That has, for the last couple of years, been legal to prescribe online and to mail people in America. So they just you'd go and use that at home. That's been amazing in some regards because it's given people accessibility. They can do it after work or at the weekend. You know, they, it's more affordable that way. They don't have to take time off to go to see a psychiatrist to get an appointment. But at the same time, you know, there definitely have been some companies that have just popped up to make a quick buck. Oh, the laws let me do this now okay, how can we do this as cheap as possible and make as much money as possible and and then we'll just disappear when we get found out. Um, so those experiences are, in some cases, some companies weren't ethical. And the impact on the person going through that ketamine experience at home without enough preparation, or without someone knowing kind of how to hold space and how to help them stay safe, yeah, there's harm being caused there. So... Harm could be someone being alone and, you know, having a really bad experience and not knowing what to do. And that actually causes more trauma that has to then be healed. And it could look to, yeah, someone just thinking they're the Messiah and they're going to go and sell all their stuff and uh, move to Mexico or Brazil and do ayahuasca for a year. And that could be a good decision. But take your time. You know, anything that's really rushed, I'm a bit skeptical on. We might still have a seed of truth but it often needs planting to know what it would look like in reality. If we just take that seed and run with it, well, okay, that seed might not go very well in, in that ground or with that sunshine. It needs to be planted somewhere else. So you've got to find where to plant that. And that takes a lot of, lot of time and patience. And I know there's a lot of work to do. We need massive help and healing. But yeah, we can't rush this process. It's, it's really intimate and delicate. And I think if we're rushing it, we're not truly tuned in deep enough to, to where our, our ultimate essence is. Where the healing happens, 
but also just where the life flows a little bit more e easily and effortlessly when we connect mm. with it really deep at its source. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Keeping it real. I like that. Yeah. Keep people in check to keep it real. <laughs> that's a really good um, perspective. Yeah. Um, as we come to the end of our conversation, David, um, one thing I wanted to take your thoughts on is I know Rick Doblin talks about this coming out of the coming out of the psychedelic closet um now um especially now like i remember one podcast i listened from him he was saying we need everyone to do this like come out of your psychedelic closet so why is it really important for all of us for maybe in your own personal experience to breaking through the fear of talking about it and um your personal experiences especially because um do you know um let me just say that sometimes i invite licensed people on the show and obviously i have to always ask is there anything that you would you would not be open to speak about and, and first thing they say don't ask about my personal experience which is quite sad so yeah i would like to hear your take on that yeah you got it and i'm mindful of that i have a license uh, a license to provide social work psychotherapy <laughs> um and yet at the same time i do talk about my personal experiences with psychedelics because there's such a huge need uh, to learn about them and to know that normal people like me <laughs> and we're all normal people that we use psychedelics and cannabis for healing um so it does normalize it a little bit um and the more people that we know the less scary it seems and you know i i can definitely talk about some of the experiences that have been life-changing like i've had a few like I've had some spontaneous spiritual kind of raptures with without any psychedelic substances. You know, I've experienced in being at the birth of my two kids that, wow, like just crying when that happened and my soul is opening up and my heart just, wow, expanding. Like these are experiences of life that we should talk about. Death. We don't talk about death. Profound spiritual experiences. Um, in deep, existential challenges about facing our death we need to talk about that so psychedelics are very much like being at someone's birth or dying like the ego death piece for sure but just coming into contact with i am gonna die how do i feel about that what does that mean to how i live my life and how do i feel about my past so it's really important to talk about our experiences. Uh, mine have not all been easy or enjoyable um, or helpful. Some I like, what was that? Um, so I've had experiences with ketamine that they're a little bit more hard to interpret for me. What was that other than just this kind of roller coaster ride and kind of like a rocket ship going like far into the, the atmosphere? Like, what does that mean? So it takes a little bit more unpacking. So, you know, I definitely feel like for me, using psychedelics sparingly is helpful for giving myself the ability to go just deep into the ripples of that experience. Like when you throw a pebble into a, a lake or a pond or a river, you get those concentric circles of ripples. So, you know, someone that uses psilocybin those ripples are, uh, 
eternal. They, they keep moving and flowing. That's integration. We are constantly integrating our past. Everything until this moment right now, I am still integrating from my birth until now, until I die. I'm integrating all of those ripples. And whenever we use psychedelics, the ripples become three-dimensional, maybe fourth-dimensional, whatever that means. But the ripples go deep down into layers of our being that we aren't normally conscious of. So it's, it's kind of multi-dimensional, multi-level, spiritual dimensions of healing and understanding self and being present and maintaining just awareness of those levels. That takes a lot of time just to tune my radio to that stuff. Long time. So I had an experience in the past. And, and what I, I say about my experiences, I don't say kind of where I was, when I was there or who I was with. And I, I hope that is sufficient to satisfy my licensing board. <laughs> um, so I had an, a, psych, a psilocybin experience in the not too distant past um, that brought up a huge amount of emotion unexpectedly. Um, and I broke down in tears, my body scrunched up into like a fetal position and I just held on and just let it all out kind of screaming and crying. And it, it all happened when I said three words it, as the gateway to, to that emotion and experience coming out of my body and soul. And those three words were, I hate myself. And when I literally said those three words out loud, it was the child inside of me finally being able to be safe and being able to just say how it feels and has felt for decades uh, that I was ready to hear it, to kind of give it space and to, to let it kind of be heard and witnessed. And since then, yeah, I've definitely needed to be gentle with myself and sensitive to that part of me that hates me or that did hate me a lot more than I do now. And it's, it's really enabled me to be more gentle and kind to myself, not take things so seriously and not be triggered as much by people. But I'm still integrating that. And it's been a, been a while. I'm still integrating that and I still see it come up. You know, I've had times with depression, with suicidal thoughts, and it's, at times got quite intense with those suicidal thoughts. Um, and and uh, yeah, since I had that sort of cyber experience, I, I haven't had those again. Or if I have, they've just been kind of passing suicidal thoughts when I just get really stressed out one day. And it's like, oh no, that's, that's not what I need to do <laughs> just to deal with being overwhelmed with just how much work I've got to do or how crazy it is, like juggling all the different aspects of my life with you know, my wife, my kids, my job, my, you know, all the other responsibilities. Um, no, so just having kindness and going, ah, I can breathe into that and I can get through this. I'm okay. Um, and a lot of people that have such intense experiences of life that they use alcohol, that they self-harm, that they zone out on TV, you know, that they just become really depressed and or have lots of anxiety or, you know, complex PTSD kind of goes untreated. And, uh, the way that we evolve in how we look physically and our facial expressions, our relationship with our body is, is influenced by that kind of repression and suppression of parts of ourself, our past and of our levers, layers and uh, levels of being that we're not connected to, that we are ashamed of or that we don't know exist. 
So yeah, that that's some, something that I'm still working through. And, and definitely my electrocution when I was 21, I opened it up. It just, it pierced all of those layers, even though I didn't want it to. Like I was trying really hard just to keep it all underneath that, that kind of veneer. But ultimately, yeah, um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, we, you know, the question is, how willing are we to, to go beyond our comfort zone? Um, how badly do we want to heal or just let ourselves listen to what it is inside of us that knows what we need to heal? Mm. Very powerful. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, thank you, Susan. Thank you. So now as a last question, there's always questions, but um, this has been really deeply powerful informative thank you honestly this has been amazing um what would you like to share with our listeners around your upcoming projects some of the things that you're working on that they can follow we'll have all the links in the show notes but if there's anything you want to share right now yeah shout out to the work we're doing at psychedelics today so i joined a couple of years ago i had offers from other companies that had you know, more money and health benefits. And, and I was like, no, I don't want to work for you in the psychedelics world. Um, psychedelics today is a bit different. Like we're quirky, we're weird. We kind of get uh, the traditions and the, the diversity of the people that are feeling drawn to psychedelics. So our podcast, like I said, is awesome. Psychedelics today, if you want to check it out. We have really diverse guests on there. They're doing different things around the world. Um, you know, underground folks, as well as people in clinical research so go go listen to those episodes and um, we also have articles that come out you know once a month or so so that's on psychedelicsa.com we have uh, an amazing selection of training courses quite a few are free so you can just literally go online psychedeliceducationcenter.com there's a couple of free courses there there are some that are quite cheap and kind of bite-sized there's another one that's nine weeks long called navigating psychedelics so we have a, a, a recorded version of that and then a live taught one for nine weeks with two facilitators and groups of 15 to 20 students. So I teach that. We have different teachers come each week alongside the core teacher. That changed my life, actually, when I did that two years ago, Susan, two and a half years ago. That made me want to work for Psychics Today, but also just decide literally that day I'm quitting my job <laughs> um, and I have to work in psychedelics. I can't keep providing addiction treatment to these people without it being ketamine or something else psychedelic i just can't do it it doesn't feel good in my in my soul um and then there's our 12 month course vital so the website is vitalpsychedelictraining.com this is the most amazing thing i have ever been part of vital was designed and created by a bunch of us here uh, it's our 12 month certificate course in psychedelic therapies and integration it's made up of five modules where we have weekly lectures, weekly study groups in small group format. We have retreats in Jamaica, Amsterdam, Costa Rica, Colorado. And we um, have electives that students can choose from about subjects that they're really interested in in the summer and the winter. So you can take your pick there. We have different kind of projects and process papers the students do just to really go deep into their personal practice and inner work. And the course is made up of the most diverse 
lecturers, instructors in the world, you'll see. So go check it out, uh, vitalpsychotraining.com. We've got you know, people like Bill Richards and Ben Sessa. We've got Adele LaFrance, um, Kylie Taylor. We've got people that you know are working more in underground spaces as well, doing uh, our study groups. And uh, yeah, it's just been a joy to be part of that. So this is really intensive training for people that maybe know already. Yeah, I want to I wanna create a new life. I want to develop my skills. I want to get competence so I can call myself a psychedelic assisted practitioner, or I can say I do psychedelic harm reduction and integration. I can go work in a retreat center. I can sit with people doing ketamine work here. I can be ready for what happens next with psilocybin and MDMA in my state or in my country. So really intensive, huge commitment. But yeah, applications are open now for Vital until March 19th. And the course starts on April the 17th. Um, we've got scholarships available. Some are still available if, if folks need help with tuition. Um, and I guess the other big thing that we're working on is convergence. So I believe the website there is psychedexaday.com slash convergence. So what is convergence? It is a, uh, I think, a unique event in Los Angeles for four days, March the 30th or April 2nd. We're calling it an experience. It's kind of a conference and a festival and a party and just a uh, retreat almost as well. So it's four days of being in the same venue from you know, nine o'clock in the morning till midnight. And we've got panel discussions. We've got keynote lectures. We've got workshop sessions. We've got activations with um, healthcare products that we can eat, smoke, drink. Uh, we've got dance parties in the evenings with amazing musicians like David Starfire. We've got yeah meditation and yoga and sound healing. So it's going to be an amazing four-day experience that we're going through together. So if folks want to come, do check it out. And we actually have half-price tickets for Vital students. So if you're wanting to do both, once you join Vital, you get half price ticket to Convergence as well. Um, so yeah, those are our two big ticket items. And for folks that are in Oregon, we're in the process of applying to get licensure as a uh, psilocybin training f facility. So we're going to provide training for folks that want to sit with people in Oregon doing psilocybin in a licensed service center. So fingers crossed we'll have that coming down the pipeline in the next month or two. Wow, amazing. Thank you for sharing all that. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. David, thank you for your devotion, your commitment, and all the work that you guys are doing. You really are leading the way. So thank you. So much appreciation. Thanks for having me on, Susan. Yeah. And thanks for listening, folks. I hope uh, you enjoyed. Yeah. And um, yes, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please do get in touch share your insights questions comments experiences uh, in the comments um, and i'll see you guys on the next one thank you thanks david thanks season bye everyone thank you so much for joining us psychedelic conversations podcast is designed to educate inform and expand awareness for more information please head over to psychedelicconversations.com you can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people you can also join us in our private facebook group 
to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.